You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. Do you like this show? Please rate us and review us in iTunes or the sometimes called Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot. We would very much appreciate it. And if you haven't heard our other show, Carbon Removal Newsroom, you should check that out too in your podcast app. It's also on SoundCloud. It's on YouTube if you're one of those people who like to listen to podcasts on YouTube. I know there's people out there. I see them (laughs) adding to our stats all the time. So yeah, in your podcast app or any of those other places. And thanks for joining us. And I'll I'll pass it over to uh, my co-host. It's an exciting day today. This is Christoph Jospe speaking. I get to co-host with my colleague, Alessandra Guerra. What's up? She's the environmental engineer, also environmental entrepreneur. I guess so. You're both of those. That means you get to ask the geeky environmental engineering questions. We promised these guys we wouldn't get too geeky. They just are hot off. Literally, like I think a couple, like maybe under an hour ago, they were on stage at the Living Futures Conference um, presenting to a bunch of smart people who think about how to design buildings that are low carbon, no carbon, zero carbon. We'll figure out what that even means on this podcast and get into all sorts of things. Anyway, we'll start with Chris Magwood sitting across from us. He is the director of the Endeavor Center, spelt the weird Canadian way, and also runs two full-time certificate programs, which include the Sustainable New Construction and Sustainable Renovations. And he can be found at many workshops all over. And we also have Jacob Deva Rakusen. And Jacob is the co-owner of New Frameworks National Building. They offer services in green remodeling, new construction consultation. Um, we just found out that Jacob also has a background in music, which is really cool. We love music. Music and climate change have more connections than everyone might think. So yeah, I mean, Jake, Jacob's a builder, a consultant, an educator. We, we like people who actually have practical knowledge and know-how of the solutions that they're talking to and connected with. And Chris is a longtime podcast listener, so welcome to the show, especially because it's so cool to have the listeners now, the actual guests. We like to start with people's story, Chris, as you well know. So let's start with yours and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Okay. Well, my relationship to building things started with trying to build a house for myself and my family back in the mid-90s and starting to try to do research around what could we do. We had this notion that you could probably do something better for the environment. Wasn't a lot of material out there. Read lots of books. Actually had to go to libraries. You couldn't just Google these things. (laughs) And ran into a lot of dead ends. We would get excited about something we would find and then we'd research it and go, "Eh, I don't know, it doesn't really, you know, seemed to do the things that we wanted to do, environmentally speaking, and ended up telling the story to a bookstore owner in Toronto one day. And she said, I've got just the book for you. And she went back to the back room and came out with this book on straw bale building, which I almost burst out laughing when she handed it over because it's like we'd been sort of looking at things that seemed sort of crazier and crazier and crazier on this pursuit. And I ended up buying the book as a total tongue-in-cheek joke to take home to my partner. Like, haha, we've looked at all of these things. Let's look at straw bale. <laughs> That's where you huff and you puff and you blow it That's all right. down. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. But we sort of had this funny reaction where all these other things we'd gotten excited about and then cooled off on as we learned more. And the straw bale thing, we were completely skeptical. All our questions kept getting answered really well. And so... We ended up building the first straw bale house in Ontario, Canada. That was the only building I was thinking that I would ever make. 
But then people started showing up uninvited <laughs> and saying, hey, we heard what you did. We want to see it. And that led to somebody saying, hey, I'm holding a straw bale workshop. Do you want to teach it? And at the straw bale workshop, somebody said, hey, I'm building a house. Would you come and help me build it? And it just sort of rolled into a business. So with a couple partners, I built about 40 straw bale houses as a contractor and then got into teaching people how to do it. And that's the last 15 years of my life has been sort of hands-on teaching people what to do. And my relationship to all this carbon stuff is in 2012, I wrote a book called Making Better Buildings. And I was trying to sort of put metrics to all kinds of different sustainable building materials. And I kind of added at the last minute, I happened to find a this database out of England that looked at embodied carbon numbers for building materials. And I thought, I'll just throw these numbers in because I'm looking at them and it's really easy to do. And didn't think much about it at the time, but then I thought, huh, like this is really interesting. You know, climate change is a thing. These numbers, some of them are really high, some of them are really low. And so I decided to model one of our buildings at Endeavor and was kind of stunned by the answer. A, there were things we were doing that we thought were great for the environment that turned out to be sort of climate nightmares that we were sort of performing. And then at the other side, some of the materials we were using, like the straw bales, were these incredible sort of climate heroes where there was more carbon being stored in the material than was being emitted in making that material. And that kind of started this path of, of just researching this. And then I thought, well, I'm just a builder. I'm not a researcher. I don't really know if I'm getting the right answers. So I went back to school to do a master's degree to have somebody tell me Am I doing this right or not? And it turns out I kind of was. And it turns out you can store a whole whack of carbon in building materials. I stayed in a building like that, actually, on my honeymoon in, in Hokkaido, Japan. I stayed in a crazy straw building. It shook a little bit when the trucks rolled by, <laughs> but I really liked it. It was kind of had a hobbit feel to it. Yeah. I mean, the notion of natural building is it, it's everywhere in the world. I mean, it's the only way things got built until 100 years ago. So yeah, everybody sort of got their traditions of, of using those materials. That's so cool. And it kind of brings to mind one common theme in this podcast is and really carbon removal solutions is we like to think about things that people interact with on every day and how those can become. And I'm going to throw out a term. It's a little bit jargony, but I kind of hope it catches on more carbon beneficial. And so looking at food as carbon beneficial, is the food that we're eating putting more carbon in the soils? Are the clothes that we're wearing actually putting more carbon either in the materials or in a life-to-life -life cycle? Or are the buildings that we're living in carbon beneficial and sort of mm. on net putting more carbon away? Because obviously that gets us really excited from the carbon cycle perspective. We're going to dive into what straw bale even means and how that might all add up. But before we do, we'll pass it over to you, Jacob. I know you also live in a straw bale house. I'm kind of jealous. I feel like, what, what am I doing in my little apartment? Like, why don't I just go out and build one of these? But how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, thanks for having me here. So my path into all of this was as an owner-builder. My background was actually in sustainable agriculture uh, and organic agriculture and really wanted to apply some of the same like values and priorities towards uh, shelter. And I'd had a young family and we were looking for a home. Actually, my wife is pretty chemically sensitive and we really weren't finding a whole lot on the market that was, you know, safe 
safe, healthy housing, nor anything that like felt good or looked good from an energy profile made any sense. And just a, there's a lot of really poor, old, toxic housing stock on the East Coast. So it kind of pushed us more towards building new and combined series of different things all led me also towards straw bale architecture as being the, the solution for us. And it was a, it was kind of a combination of things. One, I worked in a home office that was a straw bale building and it was stunningly gorgeous. It just felt and looked so much like my idea of home. And the low toxic profile of the materials were, was really important and critical. And actually one of the things for me, I was a super like performing arts nerd. You mentioned the music background, like I was a total music geek and had no hands-on skills and like no practice. I mean, that's part of why I was interested in getting into agriculture was to actually get some practical, useful life skills. And the thought of like joining a construction crew or like learning how to build things with tools and this like, you know, sort of hyper normative masculine kind of cultural environment felt really intimidating to me. It was not into that at all. And so there was this very like hands-on, accessible, tangible kind of open culture and approach to working in those materials that felt like something I could engage in. So we started building a um, straw bale house and in this abandoned farm in the mountains of northern Vermont while we were trying to set ourselves up at the homestead. And about it was a long building process. And about halfway through, I realized that I actually really enjoyed it. There was a small group of us engaging in natural building, sustainable building techniques and technologies in Vermont in the Northeast. And um, we all just sort of started hiring each other on each other's projects. So I came at it more from a contractor's side as well. And then after a number of years, you know, we kind of kept a few of us were growing closer and closer to each other. And again, hiring each other in each other's work, still staying in the game, not an easy business to make a life out of. It's not the path of least resistance for financial success, at least at that point. And so we ultimately banded together to create a company. Actually, our business partner, Ace, had founded a company with a, another partner who left. And then I joined on. And then our third uh, founding partner, Ben, joined from the design side of things. And so we organized as a worker-owned cooperative design build firm doing um, initially natural building techniques solely. And then really it's expanded towards carbon responsive buildings as that's become more and more and more on our radar as well. And so for us, the mission is very much pivoted from just any material focus to applied market-driven real worlds, carbon responsive or carbon smart. I like carbon beneficial. We've been saying carbon smart, but carbon beneficial is very descriptive. I can't take credit for it. <laughs> it's great. It works. It works. Uh, I feel like we're kin because everything you're describing about trying to store carbon, regenerative agriculture, and then coming together, starting a company and picking the path of least resistance. Guys, I don't, Nori, we might seem glamorous on the outside, but it's definitely like we're a really good team. It's really tough to start something on your own and, and you have to try and convince people. And uh, we were saying yesterday, it's like, how many punches do you get in the face and just keep going? So I admire that. And thank you for that. Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to pound it right there. <laughs> So I'm curious, you know, in the spirit of sharing ideas and exchanging your ideas, what are some of the things you heard at this conference that most excited you? It has actually been a very inspirational conference, I've got to say. This morning, we heard from the sustainability director of New York City, and he just laid out all these things that they've just passed into law. And it was just like, bam, 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 and, and like really great policies. And he and all kinds of other speakers, especially at the government level, have been really making this connection that climate action and social justice happen simultaneously, you know? So New York's climate response plan includes free accessible daycare for two and three-year-olds, 
instant citizenship for anybody 10 years old and over yeah, minimum uh, living wage minimum living wage of $15 an hour like all this stuff that that he very closely tied to also the climate fight because he's like we need everybody on board and the way you get people to work alongside you is to show them you're going to work alongside them and and that was that's been repeated a lot that and it's been a part of our presentation too is it's really nice and simple to just go oh this material is good you know put here you know done <laughs> without you know and we're always sort of saying yes that and where did it come from and how was it grown and who was involved and did they get paid properly and and so it's been really great to be at a conference an architecture conference where so many people get that level of kind of interconnectedness of all these issues. Mm -hmm. And that's so key. I think sometimes we live with this expectation of being able to reduce a soul reductionist, like, mm -hmm. oh, this is the good thing, this is the bad thing, and vegan food is better for the planet. And then, like, it goes both ways. I had someone yell at me for eating a vegetarian sandwich once, like, don't you know that that's just reaping the soil of its nutrients and, you know, you, you should be eating cows. I'm like, yeah, but not all cows are raised in rotational grazing and restoring the land. Like, a lot of them are in CAFOs. So it's not black or white. It's never black or white. Yeah. It's yeah. never I'll, straightforward I'll, and easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love grass-fed beef, but I actually heard on a call today that 80% of the grass-fed beef in America comes from Australia. So like, oh, talk, wow. talk about carbon footprint. Like, <laughs> come on, grass-fed beef farmers. Like, get at it here in America because I want to eat it from America. Well, I love and, to mention that you mentioned reductionism because, like, mm -hmm. that was how we started our presentation, actually, was if you take nothing else away from this entire presentation, it is the concept and approach of systems thinking to deal with systems problems. And, mm -hmm. yeah, I would say, certainly, one of my most, like, inspirational things at this conference is that the systems thinking perspective brought to this whole range of topics is, like, wow, what a massive acceleration of any of the different efforts on any of these different fronts. Because, you know, there's tracks on water, there's tracks on equity. There's like, it's all these, in, you know, health and toxicity, like this whole host of pieces. And they've done a fabulous job of really like, you know, parsing out how to think about this in a much more of an intersectional fashion, which makes all of these things much more possible than if you're reducing it to these itemized approaches or these like competing priorities. It's like whack-a-mole too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to throw out all the analogies yeah. at you. Affordability, <laughs> <laughs> carbon, yeah. toxicity, social equity. Popping just, up everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> right. You, you have to be a systems thinker to work in this space. It's so multidimensional. I enjoyed reviewing your slides, Chris, before, because oh, you were obviously a presenter here and I don't know, over a hundred slides. And I was like, how is he going to get through all that? I hope it went well. But one of the slides... We ended on the last slide at the like last second of the thing. Impressive. Was Congrats. Well, was, was there a lot on the slides? <laughs> no, he followed the good rules of good presentations. So if anyone needs some advice, just go to EndeavorSantra.org <laughs> uh, and find Chris. But I wanted to... One, one, of the, <laughs> one of the words on your slides was decolonize buildings. And I think that gets into this social justice element. So really, how can buildings decolonize? Like what? <laughs> and what does that mean? <laughs> Well, I mean, I sort of wish our, our sort of co-conspirator Ace McCarlton was here. He speaks very eloquently on this. But, you know, it's what we were talking about. It's that we're advocating that plant-based material is a way to store carbon in buildings. And so the reductionist version is go get some plant stuff, stick it in a building. But, you know, the sort of colonization of the soil is that sort of mass ag version of growing things where, yes, yeah, soil health is not 
part of how they work on the soil. And so the the decolonizing is to sort of realize there's a quote uh, from Leah Penman's book that uh, that we use on the slide, but that basically there's all this life in the soil and we've kind of colonized it out and it's time to sort of invite those life forms back in, you know, like they're really important. And, you know, in our direct work, we're looking at the amount of carbon in the top part of the plant that we snip off and put in a building. But there's that whole that you guys know very well, soil carbon part that goes hand in hand with that. And for as much as we can put the plant stock in the building, if that plant is also putting more carbon than is probably in the stock into the soil, then yeah, you are sort of stacking those benefits. And I think that explains it well. You might be more eloquent on this. Than yeah, I mean, I guess the only other thing I'd add to that is, you know, because climate justice involves both ecological and social impacts and that those aren't different things. They're quite literally bound and tied in the same piece. And this whole, the issues of ecological justice have like deep, firm roots in institutionalized racism. And that's both the current and contemporary impacts of who is harmed by climate impact and who has access to safe shelter and who has access to these like wonderful building technologies in real time. And also looking historically at like the effects of colonialism, which is the roots of this country and, and racism and how that has mapped our current set of massive social and ecological trauma and, and problem. So in trying to sort of daylight some of those connections, again, it gives more value to the work that we're doing and places it in a context where we can, again, not just do a material swap and pretend like that's going to be okay. Like we could easily have this like mass commodified, like horrendous expression of agriculture, which is already happening in real time and just totally associate that to get our carbon numbers to tick down. And that is not going to solve the climate crisis because it is totally bound in justice. So I think that's, you know, soil becomes this really critical space in which all the materials grow from it. And the relationships between food and shelter and water and energy are all totally intertwined. And all of them have an impact, uh, are impacted by and impact the health and quality of our soil. And so seeing some of those links there in terms of the social and, and climate justice makes the work they were doing in this very sort of like technocratic, like counting the number of molecules of emissions and stored carbon, like grounded in a much broader reality. Because I come from an energy efficiency and like an energy modeling background where it is so easy to just like fill out numbers on a spreadsheet and just look at this entire carbon thing purely in this two-dimensional metric quantifiable thing. And none of that stuff shows up on the spreadsheet. And that's, I think that's part of the, the concept of yeah. You got a great voice for radio. I got to say, I gotta <laughs> listen to that go. Uh, right I want to give a, <laughs> give one mild rejoinder to that. I've been reading Danella Meadows' Thinking in Systems. Cause I'm, a, I'm a bit newer to uh, systems thinking, but at the beginning of the book, she talked about even the mechanistic sort of reductionist mentality has things to teach too. Because sometimes systems thinking is a synonym for sort of like muddled thinking where you throw everything in. You're like, what string do you pull to do all of this? It's like, well, if we just built everything from scratch and like totally redid everything, it would be much better. And that might be true, but you're also intervening in a complex system that it could backfire in a horrible way. So in some ways, these like more limited interventions may be better. That isn't to say you should take sides of only systems thinking or only a more reductionist kind of mentality. I think both have something to teach and both obscure as they illuminate certain things. That's mm. a great point. And that, that, that is something that, you know, in our presentation, I think in our work in general, we, we actually put forward both. I don't know if you're, if you're sort of looking at the slideshow, it's like, here's the simple sort of reductionist answer and here's the systems thinking part. But, you know, we are also quite clearly advocating that 
if a normal builder of homes swapped out their fiberglass insulation for cellulose insulation and swapped out their foam board on the outside of the building for wood fiber board, there's a huge and beneficial carbon impact. And it is that easy, you know, like, so there, there's both. I mean, that person doesn't have to go, oh, what am I doing for the soil? You know? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but as you try to, you know, grow that stuff up and scale it, I think that's when it's important. Like, I'm, I'm very happy if one contractor that we talked to switches out foam for fiberboard. That's great. And it is an answer and it, it it's really meaningful. And I also hope that as people look at how do we incorporate plant-based materials into skyscrapers that, mm. you know, the, the sort of product chain, the whole sort of chain of command looks at it in a systems way and doesn't just like, let's mow down that forest and plant some straw so we can put it in a building. Like, wouldn't that be awesome? Because the carbon numbers make sense. Uh, right, right. So yeah, I think you're totally right. It is both. It's it's the big picture and the little picture simultaneously. Yeah. So to recap that then, it just is a matter of making sure that we are constantly providing enough information to have agency. Okay, this is the thing you can do. Not too much information where you're overwhelmed, but saying, disclaiming, okay, well, there's more to it, but this is what I'm suggesting for you. And this is such a fun conversation, so, but I, I want to pick on... A- Wait, can I just pile on just on top and making sure this isn't just something that the 1% or 0.1% can Absolutely. afford, yeah, which just to take a jab at Passive House and no offense against Passive House, but they're really, really expensive and just not accessible to the sort of people who you're saying, no, those who are most affected by climate change and don't have the resources to pay for being its impacts um, mm-hmm. should benefit from these carbon drawdown buildings. Yeah. And I mean, again, not to pick on Passive House because I like it and think it's really valuable. But, you know, one of the things that our research points to really clearly is that that's the problem with the reductionist thing, right? There's this whole notion, Passive House, good for climate. You what know? is a Passive House? Should we talk about that? Passive House is, a, is an energy uh, efficiency standard. And it's sort of quite far beyond anything that the codes offer. It's like, ultra energy efficiency in buildings. It does nothing. It sits there and it just retains the heat when you need it kind of thing. And that's what the name indicates. I mean, it has systems, it uses energy, but it's, it's greatly reduced. Mm -hmm. But you know, the, the, the research work that we're doing is sort of showing, well, you could throw all this extra material at this building that has a really high carbon footprint, thinking you're doing the right thing for the climate that, you know, an energy efficient building is de facto the right thing to do for the climate. But you could actually be responsible for more emissions than your super energy efficient building might ever make up over decades, you know. Would you recommend our Kate Simonin episode on life cycle assessments? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. that's a good place yeah. to go. We, yeah. yeah, this is a fun one. We've been digging into this one a lot. Yeah, and, and, and Kate's a, a colleague and was at the same conference we were at. Yeah, I think it's really important that, you know, that's where the reductionist approach just doesn't work, you know? So there's two pieces then, right? There's the, okay, what are the materials that I'm putting into the building? The processes by which I'm putting those materials in? And then the operation, right? So the body carbon and then the operations piece. Are you saying that passive houses tend to shine a light on the operational aspect that you are decreasing your emissions once you're up and running Mm -hmm. and not necessarily focusing on all the embodied carbon? And quite often in pursuit of that operational reduction, way upping your embodied impacts. And that, you know, for a long time, that's been thought of as okay, because if you look at that building, say over a hundred year time frame, in 100 years, that investment in embodied carbon will have paid itself off in energy savings. But if we're talking about 
making climate change yeah. in the next dozen years, that energy efficient home has only experienced 10% of its savings in those first 10 years, but all of its embodied carbon is in the atmosphere. So like, if we want to make a difference now, it's that upfront piece. And, you know, part of the work has been looking at scenarios in different areas, right? It's really different when, when we modeled these buildings where I'm from, Ontario, Canada. Ontario has a really low grid carbon intensity and New England has a really high one. Mm -hmm. And an investment in energy efficiency in Ontario is almost meaningless. Like the difference between a code house and a passive house on the operational side, you can barely measure the carbon impact of that. But in Vermont, there is some meaning to that. And so, you know, making sure that you're not just blindly doing what you think might be right. Oh, make energy efficient building or make low carbon building. But think about those two things together. Think about the window of time that we have to really address this issue. And are you making the impact that needs to be made in that window of time? I love everything you're saying, and it's resonating with me, especially because I'm reading a book right now called The Tyranny of Metrics, and it sounds like there's been a focus on some of the wrong metrics in buildings, which are saying we're doing good for the environment. And you actually answered one of the questions that I had posed in the show notes, which we don't even need to go into, but I loved the way that you put it, which is we can't net zero energy our way out of the climate crisis, which is exactly that. So I just wanted to make a comment. That makes a lot of sense. Alessandra, I'd cut you off earlier. You had a question. Do you want to get it in there? Thank you. Now, so I, I wanted to go back to something else that we were talking about right, when Ross was giving his brilliant summation about systems thinking versus reductionist and how we should tie them together. Mm. You said skyscrapers, and we're talking about social justice. Oh, so, there's so much juicy bait so in skyscrapers. How, oh, my goodness. <laughs> so when I'm thinking about urban areas, which are even, they're more resource efficient and have a lower carbon footprint, and people like living in cities, I like living in cities. So how do we build buildings, multifamily buildings, with some of these materials? Like, what does that look like? I mean, it depends on the scale of building. So there is a whole class of folks. I know Anne Edminster is the one who really turned me on to this, like, really strong advocacy around just you can have urban environments that have just lower story and moderate story buildings. And that very much changes the profile of solutions. And so I want to draw some distinction around just urban environment construction versus that mass scale of construction. So if it's skyscrapers we're looking at, you know, most of the issues that we hear called out as limiting or as barriers to integration of natural materials are largely around structural issues, code environment, you know, fire code issues, and then, you know, aesthetics and zoning and permitting stuff, which really boxes designers into glass, steel, concrete, boom. And so, okay, so the enclosure there being somewhat limited, at least within the short time frame within which we need to operate to be able to change the entire, you know, infrastructure around feasibility for getting the enclosure dialed in. But, you know, when we're doing some of our modeling on sort of the different parts of buildings that hold different weights of carbon, depending what the materials are, interiors, like there is a lot going on in interiors. And one of the cool things about being in this conference is they have a very strong uh, attunement towards the, the health and toxicity impacts of interior materials, as well as the beauty and the biophilic design principles around working these materials. And okay, so you could have however many like miles worth of gypsum wallboard and latex paint and PVC, you know, wall finishings, like filling up 
all of these skyscrapers. Or you can replace those in tiers, which are like way easier from a regulatory and code standpoint. And, you know, certainly from like, you know, structure and enclosure requirements, like that's, you could separate rooms with a wide variety of materials. And those materials have the potential if they're biogenic materials to balance off or maybe even entirely offset the required investments of carbon to be able to get buildings up to scale. And then you've got those stacked benefits of, and they're also really non-toxic. And so for, you know, people that are investing in that scale of building are more likely to be looking at like well certification or some of these other like non-toxic certification, you know, structures that add more value to their buildings and might actually really care about biophilia and like some worker productivity or recovery rates in hospitals or, you know, student learning rates or whatnot that come along with that. And all of that is packed into the same profile of materials. I'm like snapping my fingers. Yes. Like I'm looking at our office. It's not a bad office, guys. It's in Ballard, but it's an, an older building. What is like drywall? But I've seen. I don't seen, think they're inspired by it. No, no. But it's. We have a fake tree. Yeah, we have a fake tree. Just, guys, this is has a fake tree. But, you know, we're a startup and we got to do what we can. But I really have seen some of these living buildings and they're just beautiful. I think that what you're saying is so true. And if we don't even have to focus on the structural materials that stand up the building, but just the interior and to embed these non-toxic biomaterials. Yes, 100%. It just, when you go in them, it's like a relief. It's like motivating, inspiring, calming, creative. It's the best thing. So it blows my mind that we're even here. Like, how do we, who thought any of this was a good idea? How did this happen? How did this happen? That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. We've, uh, we've been inside some CLT, uh, like tall buildings. What's CLT, right? Cross laminated timber. But basically, you probably couldn't tell the difference if you just saw it, it just looks like a giant wood beam, but they're beautiful. And they, I would rather exist in one of those uh, nine times out of 10. Yeah. And I think there is, you know, also on the scale question, the solution that's been posited for urban environments is basically super tall buildings, like as though that's the logical map to density, whereas really that's a logical map to developers making the most amount of money off the smallest square footage of property. But there are lots of cities, lots of European cities around the world. I spent some time in Edinburgh last year that are between three and six stories tall, super dense, really livable, wonderful things, all retail and office and, and, you know, medical and stuff on the first floor and people living above and great transportation systems with the same density profile as North American cities that are putting up, you know, 20, 80 story towers. It's just like, that's not necessarily the right solution to density. Is that just mixed use zoning? Is that what they're doing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I wish we had more of it. It's not very common, except I think in Houston, I think is the only place that really has a lot of it. Mm, yeah. So maybe New York too. Yeah. And so I think there, and there are a lot of things that you can think about with those super tall buildings around their carbon footprint. Like it takes a lot of energy to pump water to the top floor. It takes a lot of energy to run elevators, you know, all those sorts of things get progressively much, much more intense the, the taller you go. So I, I think I'm all for urban density, but I don't think the super tall building is is like the de facto solution. And if we can do those three, four, five, six that we showed in the slideshow, a beautiful seven story straw bale apartment tower in France, you know, it's like at that scale, the kinds of things we're talking about are totally possible right now. There's people doing it. Uh, in uh, just back of the envelope, how much carbon could a seven story building store? Well, my best carbon storing building here, I'll, I'll brag a little bit, was a 2,400 square foot office building that its net storage was 86 tons of CO2. 
you know, one story, 2,400 square foot thing. So if you stacked seven of those, whatever seven times 86 is, is a totally reasonable number to <laughs> to throw out there. So And just to like bounce off some of those like examples of what things could be, like we just completed a three unit, three story urban infill, you know, commercially loan funded passive house in, you know, downtown Burlington, Vermont, that we actually ran some some numbers of well, what do we want to wrap this building with? And uh, oh so just the building typology, the infill with slightly less insulation, we had all FSC pre fabric fabricated structural panels that were able to be craned on site and then wrapped it with six and a quarter inches of wood fiberboard insulation and totally code compliant like again multifamily, urban infill like all the good fun juicy things and um, I haven't done the full penciling on the carbon values yet but the, at least the enclosure part of things is positive carbon storing so like that's not only like a thing that we could do like our company did that under market conditions last year. I'm here Googling because I went way too long in this conversation without really understanding or looking at a straw bale house. And I see a condo here. Uh, Yeah, they look really nice. Yeah, it really is like the bales of straw stacked on top (laughs) of each other, but within the structure of normal architecture. Yeah. And and straw is not the only material. Really, there are so many different egg residues and waste stream materials available. Like straw was for both of us, our path into this, but I do a lot of work with hempcrete. Uh, Wait, hold on. I'm going to stop you there because okay. you're, you're queuing up a game that I want to play. Oh, excellent. <laughs> with okay. both of you, which is we're talking about carbon beneficial, drawdown building, whatever we want to call it, stuff that stores carbon. And rapid fire, Alessandra or I will say a term such as hempcrete. You already queued that one, so... Then the two of you get in as succinctly as possible. What is it? How does it work? What are the good things about it? What are some of the maybe challenges or considerations about it? And then X factor, like whatever you want to say about it as succinctly as possible. Okay. Ready? Let's go. Hempcrete. (laughs) So hempcrete is the inner core of the hemp plant. So if you're growing hemp for fiber or you're growing hemp for marijuana, which we realize is legal here in this state uh, and where I come from too, there's a sort of puffy, lightweight core to that plant. You chop that up, you coat it in lime, which is sort of a a limestone cement-like but not cement binder, uh, and you put it in walls and it's insulation Its benefits are, because it's coated in lime, it's completely fire retardant, and it's extremely great at handling really moist scenarios, which not all plant-based materials are. So I was just in South Carolina before I came here, and hempcrete's super appropriate there. You know, in places where it's really hot, it's really humid, you may be inviting questions of mold if you're just throwing plants in walls, you know, hempcrete is, is really great for that. We need to get the industry ready to be able to take uh, cannabis production and also have a value-added product that builders can easily access. There's still a little bit of a range between those. And so there's some like industry development and cross-industry collaboration that will be needed. My X factor is I work in a lot of existing buildings. And one of the big issues we see are people using two-part spray foam to you know do band joists, to do like open cavity fills, which is like one of the most climate-destructive insulation materials we could use. And I would love to see all that two-part spray foam be replaced with spray-applicated hempcrete. That's like my personal goal for our company in the next few years. Okay, great. Next one. I picked this one because it, it just jumped out to me. Coconut core? C-O-I-R. Yeah, um, that's not something I've worked with, 
But it's essentially, you know, when you have a coconut and there's hairy stuff on the shell, they sort of pull the hairy stuff out and it's just a bunch of long fibers. So it's not something that's being used, you know, here in, in this part of North America, but elsewhere in the world that both the, the coir and the shells are bio-based materials that people are pressing them into panel boards. People are using them as insulation. Met a Mexican builder who does what I just described with hempcrete, with coconut shell. So yeah, I mean, basically the, the secret to all of this stuff is look around. What's your local ag waste? And there's probably a way to <laughs> you know put it in a building. Your turn, Chris. Aggregate from carbonated waste. Okay. Yeah. So there's a couple companies that are setting up typically next to a cement production plant. So cement, which is the glue that holds concrete together, is one of the sort of climate bad guys because what you're doing when you make cement is you're taking limestone and you're heating it up to a really high temperature. So you got to burn a lot of fuel, which has a lot of emissions, to heat up that rock. That's with a calciner, right? Yeah. And then what's happening, that one of the main chemical processes that's happening when you heat up that rock is you're literally driving the CO2 that was in the rock into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So you make a pound of cement, you've essentially put about a pound of CO2 into the atmosphere. So, and we use billions of pounds of cement every year. So there are a few companies that set up next to a cement plant. They basically pull those emissions out of what would have been the smokestack and using different sort of catalyzers, turn that carbon that was going up the, the, the chimney into calcium carbonate. They basically, basically turn it back into limestone, which can then become the sort of sand and gravel that the cement that's being produced on the other side of the smokestack can glue together. So basically capturing, it's a carbon capture and storage kind of thing. You're, you're sort of taking all that sort of waste CO2 and, uh, and catalyzing it back into limestone. And what really great thing about that, other than like taking what would otherwise be a destructive waste product and reincorporating that into a value added, you know, component of this like critical product, like right within this closed short cycle, which makes it very like tangible. The longevity of the capture of that carbon dioxide is is quite significant when it's bound in a more mineral based geologic form than when we're talking about, you know, biogenic materials, which at whatever point the end of their service life is, has the potential to then be burned or decomposed or whatnot. So there is a length of time at which that carbon gets captured. And in that process, that's a, you know, a significantly longer uh, storage window than working with something that could be pulled out of a wall in 10 to 70 years. And then you still have to do something safe with that bound carbon. Yeah. So there's a lot sort of going on research wise with the, with that sort of like mineral capture, but it's also not, it's not widely available. It's all sort of R and D prototype stuff. So I'm super excited about it. Um, there goes somebody on a skateboard. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to Nori. <laughs> so you wanted this to be quick. We're not good at quick. We don't really do quick okay, answers. I'm cutting you off. I'm cutting yeah. you okay, off. Let's, let's do one last one. And then we would be remiss if we didn't say this one. Agricultural residue. Mm -hmm. Well, so this kind of picks up off of the, the coconut choir framework. There is so much carboniferous, quote unquote, waste coming off of agricultural production right now. And 
we call it waste because we have, again, a very reductionist approach to commodified agricultural production, which... So, so like corn husk as exactly. an example. Exactly. Yep. Corn husk is a great example. Um, you know, in cannabis production, all of the stock, you know, straw from grain production. Rice hull. Rice hull. Yeah, yeah. Pretty okay. much all those biogenic... And so like like Chris was saying, you know, see where what you have for, you know, waste material and like go towards that. And we had this great conversation with someone at the conference it was like, yeah, we just need to find like, what are the material solutions for what our buildings need? I'm like, or you could see what all the opportunities and abundance of stored banked carbon that just is out there that is a quote unquote waste product for that industry and figure out how to build our buildings around that. And that's how that cycle gets really closed really quick. So when we say agricultural residue, that's the model. And the thing that's really exciting about building with ag residue is when you posit solutions, especially sort of major material solutions, you're often, you're trying to create a whole new industry, you know, and when we talk about sort of sustainable wood, there's a whole thing of, well, we've got to actually plant these forests and they take 40 to 60 years to grow. With the ag waste, it's like right now, today, mm -hmm. that stuff is planted everywhere in the world. And, you know, one of the, the stats that I really like is just in grain straw. So just in the stalks of wheat, oats, barley, rye, things like that, just in those stalks, those plants on an annual basis draw down all the emissions from all transportation on the globe. So we already grow enough straw that it's sucked all the CO2 from all our transportation into itself. Right now, we just then let that go. We burn it in the field. We let it molder. You know, we use it as animal bedding and then compost it. And there's, there's great things about that. But in general, all of that just ends up back in the atmosphere. And it's like, there's that opportunity. Somebody's planted it. Like, we don't have to cut down any more stuff. We don't have to make any more fields. We don't have to do any land use change. There's this opportunity. It's already grown. Somebody's driven a tractor over it. They've probably bundled it up somehow. And it's just sitting there, kind of like ripe to be stuck in a building. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Amanda Ravenhill of Buckminster Fuller Institute taught me, or maybe even us, this line. But Buckminster Fuller said something that I will now butcher that is akin to, there is no such thing as pollution, only value we haven't figured out how to capture. And I love it. Whenever someone says sees waste and they can turn it into value, that's the most beautiful, creative, entrepreneurial event or, or one of them that I know of. Yeah. And there it is for, for this climate crisis. You know, we're wringing our hands. Oh, transportation. What do we do? What do we do? Well, while we're figuring out what to do, we're vacuuming it out of the air with these plants already. Put them somewhere, you know, and, and do something useful, like make a building out of them. It, it's Or make biofuels out of them. Possibly, yeah. So I just got back from, I, that's in my mind right now. I just got back from Montreal a couple days ago. That's why I told you earlier. I'm a little tired. I've been on a crazy trip in New York before that. But anyways, ICAO, International Civil Aviation Organization, they're focusing a lot on two things, two parts to reducing emissions within aviation, which is biofuels or low carbon fuels, and then offsetting the rest. Obviously, carbon removal is the best way to do that. <laughs> but um, yeah, there was a lot, a lot of talk about how do we look and find the supplies of waste, including agricultural waste, and then start using that waste to provide sustainable aviation fuels. So my question is, what's happening now? Like, what are the things that we need to do in order to aggregate or identify where the sources of waste are and start aggregating them so that we can find out whether it's more appropriate for buildings or it's more appropriate for fuels, what like ground fuels or aviation fuels, what have you. Yeah. I don't know what the, what the fuel 
you know, use or, or impact is. I, I don't know much about that at all. But our colleague who we presented with today sort of did some numbers that 10% of the straw grown just in the US annually could build 2 million homes. But currently, this country builds about a million homes a year. So 10% of the straw that's out there wow. could, you know, replace all our other insulation materials, leaving lots for biofuel, still leaving some to put back into the soil. That's a great number. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. My mind's blown a little bit, Bl like mind blown emoji right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's about, it's about 2 billion tons a year of grain straw. Like, so just that one category of ag waste what, is... 2 billion tons a year in total or that 2%? An annually, annually around the globe. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the thing that comes to mind too, I mean, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of questions that come up for me around all of this. Like, can we find enough waste for us to not check our flight habits and to continue to build at the rate that we build. Like I no one I don't think we have any real clear understanding of that because we haven't really done enough ecological resource mapping to fully understand what the biopotential is of these different parts of the ecosystems on the planet to supply what types of feedstock. And there's uh, Janine Benyus who's the coined the term biomimicry. She has a company Biomimicry 2.0 that works with she's partnered with a group of GIS mapping experts to look at different regions that are under development pressure and map the ecological services that those areas are providing. It could be stormwater retention or carbon dioxide sequestration or oxygen production or, you know, any of these other, you know, um, you know, migratory bird habitat, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it now becomes a value proposition against the development that either that ecological service needs to be still maintained in the development or it needs to be, um, you know, offset in some other way. And so that for me, I see this additional overlap in, looking at what quantities of what resources are available in which regions and would best map to which other needed previously petrochemical fuel or feedstock materials and find ways to connect those. Absolutely. You can't manage what you can't measure. And this is brilliant. So we do need to know more about all the resources. Maps like this would be helpful. I just at the ICAO conference saw a presentation by WWF, World Wildlife Fund, where they- Not World Wrestling Federation? No. <laughs> I was like, wow, they were there, that's awesome. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, the cute little panda logo. <laughs> but I think they are releasing a report that looks at the resources from an ecological perspective for these types of fuels or waste. So that might be a subsect of what you're talking about. Great. But yeah, we should get that yeah. together and, and share that. But we know, we don't need to wait for that because yes. there's a ton of straw, there's a ton of material we're already using it. Like we can start that immediately while we're also then projecting to the future, like what are our limits to growth and Absolutely. what are our potentials for resources to support the growth we've identified we need. Well put. Thank you. Yeah. Never wait and sit on your hands. Just do it yeah. now and plan for ahead. Paralysis by analysis is dangerous right yeah. now. It, it is. We need to go. We should do it. And there's a theme here that I think also draws from a podcast we did with Fibershed, which is looking at sort of growing clothes in a hundred kilometer diameter and producing them and not sending clothes millions and millions of miles or times around the earth. Mm -hmm. And so similarly, we're talking about like find the regional activities and then figure out how to make buildings out of it. So I just I really love that. And I think we can figure it out. I want to push back against you can't measure what you can't manage because I'm reading the tyranny of metrics. I knew he was going to do it. <laughs> uh, there's, a counter, there's a counter argument to say like paralysis by over measuring or measuring the wrong things. So it's like it's a like yes. A good heart's law. Right. In the spirit of abundance, yes and. But we're getting to the end of this 
<laughs> Alessandra, like, just palm slap. <laughs> Maybe you want to comment to that. No, um, no, no. I was laughing at something else. I just keep managing to hurt myself. <laughs> I, have, I have one more question, which is really, I mean, we're talking about building things that don't last forever, and you obviously have to consider end-of-life issues. So how do you think about that and the sort of carbon drawdown buildings that we're describing here? I mean... <laughs> I'm not going to give you a completely direct answer because that most of my work is in existing buildings. So my immediate kind of response to that is the burden should be heavy to require new construction. And then that new construction should be designed to last for an incredibly long time, which is a very different paradigm in which you're engaging new construction right now. So that's not a really a direct last answer. Last no, a long that's time a great, that's a great or, answer. or be dismantleable. Yes. You know, that, that whole notion of right now, the way we build buildings, if you don't need that building in that place anymore, you just smoosh it up. You know, but you could take it apart and put it together somewhere else or add it to another building somewhere else. And, and I think that's really like a, a way to extend the life too. But the, I mean, to be maybe a little more direct speaking around like the materials that we're advocating for and like what would happen at some point to them, there's kind of like a host of different options, which that alone is enough for me. I mean, right now, again, I, I engage in existing buildings that have had spray foam insulation installed into them. And literally every single piece of material that is touched by that insulation is landfill. Like do not pass go, do not collect $200. There's nothing else you get to do with these concentration of toxic styrenes, like physically bound to to whatever it happens to be touching. So at least in this case, we've got a host of materials. Again, it could be turned into biochar. It could be reincorporated back into building materials. I've actually, when we've had to get into an attic and do air sealing, like we'll suck out the cellulose and just reinstall it, which is completely unheard of with many different types of insulation materials. So yeah, I mean, you know, you're talking about fuel in 50 years, the stuff that's coming out of the buildings is a viable fuel stock. Yeah. You know, like it, it uh, I think there's lots of things that we can do later this makes me really like helpful and i almost it makes me want to like live longer and live to be 200 years old because i feel like we're just starting now and we're learning so much from history and what we can do and we're like oh like why would you use these toxic things and it's a little harsh because they didn't have the knowledge and the awareness of the impacts of what they were doing they're like oh something cheap that would help us live and and build a building so that was mean and i shouldn't have done that but i really wish i could live like to be to 200 400 <laughs> 500 years ago and see like how do we solve this problem and hopefully we do and i think we will but it might be a little painful. Yeah. It might be a little painful. People might have to feel some serious hurt before they start to change. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, I mean, the reason I've been a fan of your podcast and what you guys are doing is that the great thing about this sort of carbon storage in buildings thing is it's actually pretty darn easy to measure, you mm -hmm. know, like it's not, yeah. you know, and, and this is one of the things with energy efficiency in buildings, which, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm all for energy efficient buildings, but... When you design an energy efficient building, you make a computer model and you go, okay, this is how much energy this building is going to use. And then that's what everybody uses, governments and everybody to say, well, it was the, there's the carbon footprint of that building. But if it was not built well, if the occupant isn't, you know, functioning in there properly, like there's all of these things that can skew those numbers, like they can be just so wrong. But we know that if we put a pound of straw in a wall, it's 48% carbon and that's how much is in there. <laughs> and unless the owner like busts down the wall and rips it out and throws it on the lawn, it's going to stay there. 
and it's going to stay in a pretty highly regulated world. Like you don't tear buildings down without the government knowing that the building is, you know, being torn down. So for you guys trying to go, how do we know if X amount of carbon has actually been stored? This is a great medium. You know, it's like you weigh it. You weigh it. <laughs> it's methodology written. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, these methodologies are not proprietary to Nori. We're just building a marketplace, so we're super excited to mm-hmm. like build something that will enable the generation of carbon removal certificates in the buildings. I tried not to link this back to Nori, but I just did. Sorry. I want to turn this back around to you guys. I've learned a lot on this episode. I'm sure our listeners have too. For our listeners who are now super jazzed up, they think everything you're doing is amazing. One, what can they do and where can they go to find out more information? I mean, one of the greatest resources right now for folks curious about Embodied Carbon is the Carbon Leadership Forum and the Embodied Carbon Network, of which we are members. And based here at the University of Washington. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Another, I mean, for I'm, the- I'm bashful to admit that we had Kate Simon in on and I was like, we're going to join that and we haven't yet. So we probably should. Now for the second time, I'm going to commit us to it. Yes. On the air, and we're doing it. <laughs> yep. And Joining it, now. <laughs> it's public now. You've announced. We've outed ourselves for yes. the second time. And honestly, I get really really excited and would love to see more more of the folks that are really excited about regenerative agriculture and regenerative silviculture talking to the folks those of us that are into regenerative buildings talking a lot more and so like there are so many different points of intervention but some of the things I'm excited about is all right so folks that are looking at ag and looking at forestry and whatnot like hey we're really excited to uh, talk with you about getting more of those materials to work together and, and aligning those industries that's first and foremost on my mind just in real time, which is why I'm mentioning that out loud. Yeah. And I think too, that this whole area really lends itself to really a really cool model of sort of micro factories, you know, here's a farm (laughs) producing, you know, 200 tons of straw a year, that farmer or somebody right there could turn that into building material on farm and get it to a local city and really sort of build up regional manufacturing on a much smaller distributed scale. Like, you know, the reductionist thing would be like, cool, there's lots of rice straw in California. Let's ship it to you in Vermont, you know, and throw it on trucks and, you know, trundle it across the country, uh, you know, but the agriculture is happening everywhere. And and so to sort of, it's exciting to think, so you sort of talked about the link with the growers, mm-hmm. but also with people who are into manufacturing, like, you know, there's, there's this opportunity for real employment and innovation and like really useful carbon storing, manufacturing, small-scale manufacturing that that sort of is where all of these things kind of meet. And back on the building side, things are more like a tangible, like organizational informational resource. Architecture 2030 is doing like a whole lot of looking at this. And in particular, their carbon smart materials palette is being developed and released, which really captures and catalogs a lot of the best materials to be using for, you know, direct embodied carbon response. And actually, we've both been involved in helping to fill out that palette a bit and part of the Carbon Leadership Forum's Renewable Materials uh, Working Group has been, you know, really spearheading a lot of the materials being highlighted on that palette. So a lot of crossover in those communities. Yeah. And we're really excited to start taking this to the policy side. You know, there are so many people at this conference and elsewhere where there's the sustainability director of New York City sort of really talking about buildings in a meaningful way. And we sort of want to try to get our foot in the door and go like, 
make sure it's, you know, <laughs> you're not just encouraging everything getting blasted with spray foam, you know, you've got the right idea, but yeah, to really try to sort of intervene uh, at that level, because good policy now would make a huge difference in sort of encouraging this to happen. Those are really excellent ideas. And that's one of the things that we love about this podcast is because people vote with their wallet. They also can vote with sending a letter or a strongly, strongly worded letter to their local representative or a phone call to say, hey, this stuff matters. And it seems like you've given some really actionable steps that people can voice their opinions on. Thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. You didn't say it, so I will. If you're interested in finding these guys, you can go to Endeavor Center. That's with an O-U and an R-E dot org. And if you like the show, please share it. If you especially like this one, if it's your first time, thanks. Please subscribe. Rate us, review us on iTunes. We've got a weekly newsletter, nori.com slash subscribe. We'll hook you up and you'll get all sorts of great content that we talk about and you can stay informed with that progress. Ross, did I miss anything? No, you're good. If you need me, I'm at newframeworks.com. Newframeworks.com and see you next time.